Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora. We are lawyers with the Hall Law Group with an office in Columbus, Ohio. Jack, have you had an occasion to visit a client uh, or take a deposition in a state prison? I've never had the opportunity to do those things in a state prison, but I've been in, a, in state prisons a number of times. It's, uh, it's quite an experience. It is, and I've um, I have a couple of clients that are uh, currently incarcerated, and um, I can tell you that it is an intimidating and uh, kind of depressing place from my perspective when those uh, steel barred doors close behind you as you're going in. You know that it's a it's a very serious serious atmosphere. So. Yeah, when they construct prisons, the, they don't bring in anybody in to do aesthetics. No, I, I think about that, too, with the paint that they use. They must get it in bulk. Uh, gray. It's gray. Yeah. Um, but our guest today, Christine Money, knows all about the prison system. Uh, Chris served as a warden of three different prisons, and we're excited to talk to her about her experience and what she's doing now. Yeah, we are lucky to have Chris. Uh, Chris, I understand that things changed at Marion Correctional from the time that you stepped into the door and then in comparison to what it was like before that. Tell us about that. Um, I arrived at the Marion Correctional Institution in 1996. I had served as a warden at two um, prisons that housed women, um, both for four years each. So I had been a warden for about eight years. I was sent to Marion because MCI was un had been under a federal consent decree for conditions of confinement out of the federal court in Toledo. So the, my mission was to get us out of the federal consent decree. So I, uh, we actually accomplished that in uh, 2000. The interesting thing is it had been under federal court jurisdiction since the 1970s. So pushing 20 years when I arrived. So Well, let's put that in context. Yeah. When you say the prison is under a consent decree, that means things are going really wrong at the prison in terms of how uh, the prisoners are treated, right? The, the inmates have filed a class action lawsuit and literally impacted every area of operation. A lot of times litigation is a specific you know, um, issue, but in this case it was all-encompassing. So the uh, work had been done before I got there in 96. There had been staff working toward um, improving the conditions. So I was, my job was to kind of bring it home and wind it up. The thing that strikes me about prisons is that they don't get much attention because they are at the receiving end for people who have offended society. Right. And the big soundbite is be tough on crime, which right. means you can sort of discard these people and not think about them a second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that happens. Uh, that, that really accounts for um, the get tough on crime in the sentencing laws in the 80s and 90s, increased prison populations, uh, not just here in Ohio, but um, uh, in our country dramatically. Um, people were being sent for drug crimes. Um, they were also uh, s staying in prison longer for all crimes. And then the parole board was keeping people longer periods of time as well. So that accounted for the huge uh, increase in population. I started in corrections in 1981 
at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution, and there was eight prisons. Um, today, I think we've shut a couple. I think we're right about 30. At the height, it was 32, and a couple prisons have closed. So. And we've been hearing a little bit about private prisons. Are yeah. there private prisons in Ohio? Yes. How many yeah. are there, and how does that compare to the state uh, system? Um, it's very similar to the state system. Um, the department identified as a, it was really started as a cost saving measure. So the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction identified a couple of prisons, and um, uh, private corporations bid on those. So the today the North Central Correctional Complex next door to MCI um, is a private prison. And there's at least one other. I'm, I'm actually not positive how many now. There's either, there's probably two, there could be a third. Um, those prisons have to operate by the same administrative regulations, the same policies and procedures. You would not know much of a difference walking in and around a prison that's private or state run. Um, so they're very, they have to follow the same rules and regulations. I want to go back to your time at Marion Correctional because, yeah. you know, I'm up there on a re somewhat regular basis yeah. and I hear from the insiders, that's the term, the insiders and the outsiders. I hear from the insiders that there was a world of difference between what was going on before you got there and mm -hmm. what went on after you got there. So give us a couple examples of why the, the guys in the prison are actually big fans of yours. Well, one of the things that we did initially was to um, really look at the classification of offenders that were there. Uh, Marion is a level one and two facility that would be old time minimum med medium. But as offenders were committing violent offenses, at that point in time, they were not increasing their security level to a higher level. So that was the first thing I did. As people were assaultive and aggressive to other prisoners or staff, we, in, we uh, increased their security level and sent them to appropriate institution. So as the violence declined, then we focused on increasing program services. So we invited lots of volunteer groups in, particularly in the faith-based arena, and there began the transformation of MCI. Were the uh, correctional officers that worked for you on board with those changes? I think that um, it took time because it was such a different approach. And most of them did become part of the solution. Um, I, I ask that because, yeah. um, I don't know, Jack, you probably don't remember this, but I represented a, a prison guard, a corrections officer. and. It seemed to me that not only there was there some tension between the inmates and the guards, but also between the administration yeah. and the guards. Mm -hmm. And um, he was uh, going through a disciplinary action, and I got to learn a little bit about, you know, their perspective. And I got to tell you, it seems like they're it, they're in sometimes a very tough position and under a lot of stress. They're, being a correction officer is extremely stressful. Um, they. Uh, Many times if they're in a housing unit, it, the, the odds are one staff member to like 120 offenders. So they have a very challenging job. One of the things that I did early on was engage the union 
and um, union leadership to assist in some of the problem solving and identify some of the safety and security issues and other issues the employees had and really made them full partners. So that really helped in the change and get buy-in and get people on board. But the correction officers, the other thing that we did is that not only myself, but um, all my direct reports were require, I required them and myself to make rounds of the prison every week so that we had direct contact with the correction officers, direct contacts with the offenders. We were out listening. They call it management by walking around, and it's really challenging because in a prison there's lots of work to do, and it's easy to sit at your desk because the volume is enormous, but you really learn what's going on in the facility when you're out talking to people and solving problems on the spot. And the more we did that, um, the, the actually problems began to uh, decrease over time. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? You mm-hmm. said something interesting, walking around. Mm-hmm. So... Give me a bit of a day in the life of Chris Money when she was running MCI. What did that look like? Well, it never looked the same every day, so it's kind of a hard question to answer. People ask me what being a warden was like, and I said the best thing that I could think of would be it's probably similar to being a mayor of a town. We had a police force, which was the correction officers, a hospital 24 hours a day that was out that with doctors and nurses. We had um, a school all the way from adult basic education to GEDs to college. We had um, a chapel that serviced all faith groups in the prison. We had industry, Ohio Penal Industries, that produced um, a variety of different items in, in a manufacturing setting. We had vocational education programs so people could learn uh, welding, uh, masonry, they could learn house wiring, um, auto mechanics. So it was like, uh, and then a cafeteria that served 2,000 people's three times a 6,000 meals a day. So there's a food service operation. So it was, and then we had a mail room because people send mail in and they had to sort and uh, check out the mail before it was delivered. So it was uh, in visiting so that families could come in and visit. So it had, there was a lot of programs and services and it was critical. It's critical in a prison that programs and services are up and running and efficient. It's because the, the environment is so compressed and and people get angry easy, easily. And so if the mail's a week behind or if people can't get to medical that are sick or if something's going on, um, somebody, a family member can't get in to visit because there was a snafu or something, people can get very angry. So it's critical when you're managing a prison to make sure all of the services are up and running and operating and people are being served. So there's to keep uh, a relief of tension in the facility. You know, when you refer to it as a little city, there's also another aspect to that, which is the people who come and visit. Maybe you mentioned it, but I I can expound on that a little. I I remember from teaching at a medium security facility in law school, which by the way, was I think the only class I liked in law school. (laughs) It was the only one I enjoyed. <laughs> That's because people were forced to listen to you. It sounds like <laughs> they couldn't just get up and go home. 
One, okay, so the pun there is it was a captive audience. Okay, but here's what was really interesting. When we'd come in in the evening, you know, we're seeing wives and girlfriends and kids mm-hmm. and pastors and members of the NAACP. I mean, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And this is what these people do on a regular basis. They come in to see those family members, those clients, those former congregants. It's a slice of life that people don't appreciate because they just think, well, you throw people in jail and that's it. Mm-hmm. But it is this own little community with yes. people coming and going. And one of the things that I found was as we began to dramatically increase the programs and volunteers and people from the community that came in, the violence went down, grievances went down, uh, fights among inmates went down. So um, people need to be engaged. They need to have purpose. They need to have and, and they need to have healthy interaction with people. If you, that's why I'm very concerned about this past year because the prisons have pretty much been shut down because of COVID. And so there haven't been visits. There haven't been volunteer groups. Now that's loosening up and it's opening up and it's heading in a really positive direction now. But that was a very long time. The longest time when I was a warden that we were ever in what I call what would be called lockdown was during the Lucasville riot. I was the warden at the Ohio Reformatory for Women and we locked down for 11 days. And I remember thinking it's the longest 11 days ever. So that's the only thing I can compare it to and thinking that they have gone through it for like close to a year. So it's had to been very, very stressful for the offenders. It's very stressful for the staff to manage them. And I'm sure it's a very difficult, um, one, of our, one of the programs that we do, uh, at one of the sites is the Ohio Reformatory for Women, which means women haven't seen their children in a year. You know, so it's it's been, it's probably the toughest year in corrections that I'm aware of that really hit hard. And as, of course, was a, you know big media stories, there was COVID was rampant through both Marion Correctional Institution and some others, um, Pickaway Correctional. And then the other prisons had, you know, spikes here and there and, and, and did the best to manage it. But you, you, in the environment, you, it's challenging when if you're in a cell, you're with another person and if you're in a dormitory, you can probably reach out and pretty close to touch somebody on this side and that side. So to think, it's just impossible. How it's built, it's impo- it's close to impossible to have, you know, protected every single person that's incarcerated. Did they have the uh, email system in place when you were there? Uh, mm-hmm. They call it JPay now. No, but I I had I left cor- adult corrections in two thousand and five. Oh, okay. And All right. uh, finished my last five years in state service at the Ohio Department of Youth Service, our juvenile correctional system. Um, so that wasn't there then. Mm-hmm. We were uh, JPay is like an email system where they can email people. They, now they probably monitor it. I would assume the uh, the emails, but so it's you pay like it's a um, an like envelope, a, sta- a yeah. stamp, right? Yeah. And but it caught my attention when you were saying how uh, closed off yes. the inmates are. That it, it it because I probably correspond with three or four inmates regularly, and then a, a variety of others. But if I don't get right back to them, they're wondering, what, where am yeah. I? What am I doing? And it just goes on and on. And I try to tell them, 
unless you ask me a question that needs to be responded to, I usually don't, not that I care about the 32 cent stamp, but I do know on their side, sometimes the cost is, is you know, a, a concern. But it does give them a way to communicate with they the outside have, world. They uh, have JPay. They can uh, can make phone calls, and they have video. Um, they can video conference family. So that's how they, I'm sure, got through this past year. To that's how they can communicate. Mm-hmm. I uh, was doing a uh, hearing with a um, inmate by video conferencing in the. Um, corrections officer was in. I, I couldn't see the whole room, but I could tell there were other people doing other things. And we're trying to have this hearing that, that the uh, Supreme Court and oh somebody was in the background typing really loud or doing something <laughs> really loud. And I said uh, to, to my client, who's an inmate, can you ask that person to stop? And he looked at me like, no, I really can't ask people to do anything. <laughs> I said, I understand. Maybe our, our chair of our committee can. Oh. Um, so. Hey, let me ask you a question, John. You know how many people are in the uh, state prison system today? I can only imagine it's a lot. Do you know? I think, at least as of a few years back, about 55,000, Chris? Is that It's a, under 50. I think it it's in f- the upper 40s now, but because they've had a decrease. And then I think with COVID, they actually, the population went down some. Well, here's the point. Gary Moore, the former superintendent. Yes. Um, director. Director, excuse mm-hmm. me, who, by the way, was very nice to me in my, in my uh, inquiries and actually took me down to death row himself to take a look at it. But he said it was like 7,500 people 30 years ago, give or take, maybe 40 mm-hmm. years ago. Does that mm-hmm. sound right? Yeah. So, okay, how did we get that great big increase? Well, you mentioned that you were going to be talking about that. So I checked out the uh, sentencing project, and basically there were 22.2 million people nationally in prisons and jails. And then there, and there has been, there are, and then that is a 500% increase over the past 40 years. So basically that happened because of a series of law enforcement and sentencing policy changes on the gift tough on crime era. And that caused a dramatic increase. Um, there was the also the official war on drugs in the 80s. So the number of people, I think I mentioned earlier, incarcerated for drug offenses went from, in that period, went from about 40,000 in 1980 to 450,000 in 2017, you know, 10 time increase. Um, the other thing is, is that the thing, other thing that happened in the 19, between 1980 and 2010, where people stayed longer. So if you were sentenced in the 60s or 70s, if you were sentenced, uh, you, you stayed a, a period of time. When you got to the 80s to 2010, you stayed significantly longer. So that on top of recidivism, recidivism is measured at return to prison within three years of release. So now you've got a a mounting number of people in the prison. So as they leave and 30% of those come back every year. So then it's, it's just, it's a mountain. It just mount, you know, it just mounds and mounds and mounds of people coming back. Um, And at the time in the later eighties and nineties, parole boards um, kept people longer for life sentences. And 
that is something that actually is beginning to change. They're looking at, because they have found, research shows that basically at some point in the when people get into their 40s and 50s, they pretty much age out of criminal behavior. They tend not to reoffend anyway for whatever, you know, they just age out. And so- It's, it's kind of like you being a track star, Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> you aged out. <laughs> so- um, one of the things that's happening now, because co- crime rates haven't gone up since the 90s. So one of the things that's happening now is that people are, jurisdictions are looking at sentencing policies and the the director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, Annette Chamber-Smith, and the chair of the parole board, Alicia Handwork, have been working toward um, how to make uh, common sense judgments about how long people need to stay in prison who uh, are facing the parole board. You know, you just hit on something. We had on on this podcast about a year ago, Justice Supreme Court Justice Donnelly. And remember, he was talking about how sentencing ought to be a public record or it ought to be disclose so that judges can have some kind of sense for what's going on across the state so they can mete out sentences on a more uniform basis as opposed to one guy getting five years and somebody getting 15 years. Have you heard about this? No, but it makes sense. I mean, you have 88 counties, 88 courts of common pleas, sentencing. Yeah, there's guidelines, and but there's – in my – experience there's very disparate treatment in some counties compared to others. When you were uh, talking about the programs that you um, Mm -hmm. uh, or the opportunities for inmates through programs, did any of those help with uh, the transition to life beyond prison to keep them from reoffending? What type of programs our listeners might be interested to know? Well, I might, if it's okay, shift toward... um, what we're doing now. Is that okay? Sure. Kind way. So I retired from the uh, corrections world in um, 2011 and I joined a nonprofit called, it's now called Kindway. And basically they were, the people that founded it were volunteers. Dave Ransom and Tom Duber went to, they were Kairos volunteers and that that's a Christian ministry. And but they were not permitted to have um, uh, contact post-release with people. So they went to their pastor and they at Reynoldsburg United Methodist Church, and they um, uh, set up a nonprofit organization to stand in that gap. So we launched Kindway, and we launched what's called Embark. That's our reentry program, and that's Jack's a volunteer with us. And what we did was we started in uh, summer of 2011 at the Marion Correctional Institution and the Ohio Reformatory for Women. And we work with men and women on um, uh, one program that's uh, evidence-based reentry curriculum. And it really is uh, uh, focused on cognitive behavioral therapy that helps offenders move from criminal thinking toward pro-social thinking. And then we have a Christian programming called um, Celebrate Recovery. It's a 12-step Christian program. And we introduce 
we call them navigators, they are mentors, and Jack is a navigator and has successfully navigated people. So that's so that as the person transitions out, they have the same people that they've met inside stay connected. Um, so uh, anywhere from one to three people are connected with someone re- being released. So we work with them inside to prepare them for release and the best practice programming we could find. And then we stay connected for at least one year post-release. We connect people to housing. We actually operate housing for men called the Embark House. With women, we have um, two partners that already house women in transition out of prison, so they became uh, partners. We help people connect with employment. We make sure they have food, they have clothes, have a guy starting a job a week from Monday, you need steel-toed boots. We have uh, somebody that, uh, a donor that's providing that for him. We make sure they have bus passes. Uh, We do case management where our staff make sure, I mean, people come out of prison, they need identification, they need, you know, we end up at social security offices and bureau motor vehicles and uh, every state government office you can imagine. So we get them around everywhere that they need to get. Um, We make sure they get connected with their family and friends and things as they transition out. So... Um, we stand in that gap. We we take we reach back in, and I say that we're a human safety net. We we they get to know the people facilitating the programs. They get to know the navigators, and that twenty five ish thirty people they know are on the other side of the fence as they get out. So uh, then in the community we have reunions to stay connected with them, and we also do other have other activities and programs and stuff going on outside. How do you choose the uh, person that you're going to help? Because you, there's got to be a lot more yes. that are re-entering society than you can possibly yeah. help. What we do is there's an application process. So people, we hang posters up in every housing unit in June. So that's coming up. So we'll hang posters up that I de- say we that describe the program. But at this point in a prison, everybody knows who we are now because we've been there 10 years. So they um, there's directions on how to apply and who's eligible. We want to make sure that people um, basically because we're in Columbus, they need to be locating in Columbus. Um and they need to be able to complete the program. We start in August. We end the following June like a school year. So they need to make sure they are long uh, in the program long enough to complete it. And then they, tran- they either have an out date, a release date, or a parole eligibility date the following year after the program. So the men start signing up for season number 10 at Marion and the Ohio Reformatory for Women. Um, have to start in August of uh, 21. They graduate in June of 22, and they have some sort of release eligibility date from June of 22 to June of 23. And then we then stay, they stay connected with us and then transition out. You know, you think about, Jack, how hard it is to probably for some of these people to find a job when they're out because, you know, economic... um, uh, issues are going to be important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have somebody that doesn't have a driver's license, so they need to be on a bus route or within walking distance. Um, I don't know if anybody in your program has the you know restrictions due to registering, you know, if you're a sexual offender or something like that. So there are only so many places they can really live. 
Um, and so it's it's sometimes it's very difficult to find a job. Also, you got to put on your job application that you're a, a felon. Yeah, fortunately, you know, we're starting to see the ban the block movement. I think that's already taken an effect in the state of Ohio. I yeah, it did. Think. It has. Yeah, some years ago. But it's and some companies are going in that direction, but it's not universal. But even so, even getting more detailed, there are a lot of professions that you're barred from entering into because of that criminal record. Mm -hmm. So tell us what it's like for a man who's been in prison for 30 years, for whatever reason, doesn't have kind way helping him out. What does that fella do? Well, that person would have to face the parole board to get a release if they're doing that much time. So they have to have a parole plan. So they have to uh, have a place to go, whether it's a family or a friend. They don't have any people in their life willing to accept them, then they would go to a halfway house. And halfway houses are equipped to assist them in, in the transition part. But it's um, it's very difficult. I mean, they without, But the halfway house isn't actively looking to get that person employment, is it? Um, actually, some they, they are now. They do have training programs and placement because pro, they want they need to make sure these the people that are that are going to stay there um, in transition. So they, I understand. I don't know lots about that. I do know though, like the local halfway houses, Elvis House, assists people in in resume writing and connects them to employers and. Because Columbus, uh, our unemployment rate is so low, um, people are begging for employees. And our men and women make exceptional employees. By the time they've served their time and they're out, they're mature, they have a work ethic, they show up, they're so grateful to have a second chance and to have a job. They show up, they show up on time. Our people are getting promoted. They're getting, you know, hired. They're, they're just... Um, they're doing really, really well. And uh, uh, when we very first started, finding employment was probably one of the most challenging. It was um, part, uh, no, nobody would hire, almost no one would hire them. The people that would hire them were not full-time people, um, jobs, and they were, were minimum wage-ish jobs. And so it was no benefits. So they were really living in poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, really desperate situation. However, a lot of them use that. We would say, just go and work the hardest you can and at least build your resume. So you got out of prison, you got this job, and then we'll work on the next step with you. So we say, initially, get a survival job, and then we'll get you, a, then we'll work with you on a job to help you thrive, not just barely get by. So I don't think I told you this story, but the man that I'm mentoring, Sam, mm -hmm. talk about being a good employee. His car broke down once, right? So he was so worried after that about not getting to work, he bought a second car. Yeah. And I tried to convince him, you know, we got Lyft, we got Uber. Yeah. We, nope, <laughs> I'm getting a second car. I'm not going to miss work. Yeah. Okay. There's probably yeah. some reluctance, I would think, from employers or just people out in the community if uh, somebody has a background of violence or committed a violence offense. Um, what... 
assurances, if any, can you give people that, that allow us to give uh, some of the, the people in your program a second chance or a third a- chance? Actually, when we're talking to employers, um, that always comes up. And I ask them to please tell us what their requirements are because we're not going to set somebody up for failure. If you're not going to hire them, just tell us what you'll accept. Uh, And we have been pretty successful talking to employers about the fact that it's actually our violent offenders that have served 28 to 35 years in prison that that offense was so long ago that that person has made such a dramatic transformation over the time. They have um, had a a great institution record. They have um, had, they've been employed in prison jobs. Um, We know them and we come along with, we come alongside with, of them. Um, Because I've told employers, if you discount them, you're really gonna be discounting some of your best workers and that has really panned out and our employers would tell you that there and and it's it's a hard sell initially so normally we try to lead with strength so we you know with our, with the different employers we try to send them people that we know that will just really really be good cuz and then that opens the door for people behind them so we always tell people particularly if you're the first one working for a new employment partner that if you want to help the men and women behind you you need to you need to make sure you're an you know an you know excellent employee and because they're older and more mature they they kind of do it naturally you know they just they have that ethic mm-hmm. Well, also coming from a, for, a former warden, I imagine that your recommendation carries mm-hmm. a lot of weight. I could see a, a former inmate trying to make that sale and people being a little more you yeah. know, uh, skeptical. Well, and we've known them, you know, and and, uh, and and it just depends who it is. But some some people, I mean, I was the warden at Marion for 10 years, so I know many of the people that serve very lengthy sentences. I've, know, I've known some of them for 20 years. And so, um, you know, we, we, we are references. I, uh, many times we are references for employment because if you figure as someone's been locked up even 10 years, they simply don't exist in, commun- in the community. So if a landlord wants to know, you know, sh- trying to discern whether or not they should rent to them or somebody to hire them or they wanna go to college and they have to have letters of reference or references for all kinds of things, we, we kind of stand in the gap for that and say, okay, I've known this person for this long and this is what I can tell you about their character. So we do that and that's a huge part of what we do. Almost every time I go up to MCI, Marion Correctional, I look around that room of men and I think, you know, a lot of times the only difference between them and me is maybe five minutes of bad decision making. Yep. What do you yep. think about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, any the people that have committed violent offenses, that's why those, those the circum, whatever the circumstances were around that are likely to never be replicated again. It, it's, there's some really bizarre stories of how people came to commit the crime. But one of the things uh, to know is that one of the things that I came to know is that there's a tremendous amount of brokenness 
uh, in the lives of people who are incarcerated. There is a lot of abuse, both men and women, particularly women, at a higher rate. There's um, addiction issues, uh, mental health issues, um, poverty. So there's lots of reasons that kind of go into the formula of their lives. And not everybody that had that, those things happen, that the adversity happened, commit criminal, uh, or become criminals. But in many cases, you can kind of look at the, the history and see, I can see exactly your path, how you got from all of this to committing a crime. Let me give you the opportunity to brag for a minute. So how many men and women have you put through kind way and how many have fallen off the wagon, so to speak? Okay, we've had inside Marion and RW, we've had 190 men and women complete the inside program. 55, 100, I'm sorry, and 55 people have transitioned to the community. So of those, the ones that stayed connected with us did the inside program and stay connected one year outside, only one person has returned to prison. Of the whole group of 155, um, our recidivism rate's about 5%. And those are people that did not stay connected. They decided to go their own way or do whatever um, without us, because you know it's voluntary, so we're just there um, to, we can't. We're not, we don't make anybody. The only time it becomes involuntary for them is if they get parole. Like if the men get paroled to us, then they're then we're responsible for their supervision, and that's only typically six months before they transition into to live independently. But basically, it's a formula that when you look at when you really seriously tackle criminal thinking errors, and when you work on faith and develop. Um, a, a pro-social, healthy, Christ-centered community, um, it, it's, it's a recipe for success. And people, I, I tell people at orientation, you have got to want to come back to prison. If you go through this program and stay connected, you literally have to want to come back to prison because you won't have to. There'll be nothing that, you, that you'll need that you aren't provided or provide the opportunity to come back, that, that you would have to ever come back to prison. And they all look at me like. <laughs> there, uh, I can't imagine there's a cost to kind way for the uh, the inmates or their families. No. Where do you get your funding and where do you get your uh, volunteers? Well, the volunteers come from a variety of churches and somebody just asked me that question the other day. We have about 80 volunteers and we haven't recruited volunteers in several years, they come to us. They hear about us. Their friends here. So, yes, other volunteers bring their friends. So um, when we talk at churches, people say, "I want to sign up." So we haven't recruited anyone. Um, I'm sorry. What was your question about? Oh, where are we get funding? <laughs> yes, your funding. Um, okay, funding. Uh, we have a very generous board of directors. Beyond that, we have a dozen or so church partners that give us uh, mission funding. Sometimes it's called outreach funding. It just depends. Churches typically support, you know, um, uh, nonprofits that are doing ministry. 
We have a couple of uh, foundations that we apply and have been granted funding. And then the vast amount of our funding comes from individual donations, individuals. So we do um, an annual fundraising event for the network of our board of directors and people just hear about us. I can tell you a kind of a cool story. On Sunday, one of our um, alumni who finished the Embark program um, inside was released after 33 years and I hired him on our staff in January and he did his testimony at Rock City Church on Sunday and the pastor announced at the end that they are making a donation to Kindway for one year of his salary. So yeah, so wow. that's nice. It's just you just don't know where it's going to come from. So it's just it's. Well, I, I think you're mistaken about one thing. You do have one recruiter. You got is it Matt Palmer? Oh yeah, yes. Oh, I, I could probably. Do you want to talk about it? Oh sure. Do you want me to? You do it. Okay. So several years ago, Matt Palmer, um, who owns a financial investment company here in in Columbus. He um, came to an event we had at Marion, and he heard some of the inmate testimonies. And on walking out, he said, I want to bring a busload of men up to experience this. I want to bring, you know, and, and so I'm kind of thinking he's kidding, right? So he contacted <laughs> us like the next day, a couple days later, and said, I'm going to plan it. So Matt has underwrote a whole day of running a bus and and bringing men up to the Marion Correctional Institution and the men inside put on a retreat day for them. And so we got, that's really where we got lots of our volunteers from that. And so he's done that five times and walking out after the fourth time, he looked at me, he goes, do you, would you wanna do this at ORW? That's the women's facility. I said, that would be awesome. So in uh, 2019, we did, he did a bus ride to, um, ORW, and we had a, a number of volunteers sign up uh, from that, too. So, I, I was on that bus a few years back. Yeah, it's a powerful day, wasn't it? I walked into that chapel. I was just struck, and it's one of the few times, I don't want to say I cried, but I got, I got yeah. a little teary-eyed because there were all these men, all the insiders, who were overjoyed to see us. Yes. Yeah. And they welcomed us like we were long lost friends. Yeah. Now that sounds, that's difficult to believe for the average outsider, but it was an important day. I, I think sometimes in that situation, their kindness is disarming because oh, you don't expect it. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, exactly mm -hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Chris, you mentioned there might be 30 state prisons mm -hmm. around Ohio, and uh, you're working in two of them. What's yes. happening in the other places? Any similar programs you're aware of? Any well, requests to your group to branch out? We could probably go to as many places as we can if we had the resources. We are um, taking Embark to the Pickaway Correctional Institution. We've already started some preliminary programming with them last week, and we're starting Embark season number one in August there. So we're going to our third one, and then we'll be looking at a fourth soon after that. I would think that most um, or all the institutions would be interested um, just to keep uh, inmates from coming back. Right. Uh, so 
Um, I'd asked you earlier about uh, programs while they are still inmates, and I know that yours is a year program, but what else is available? Are are there educational courses? Are there... um, uh, There's there's a myriad of programming. Um, People can come in and be illiterate and go through adult basic education. They can go to high school and get their GEDs. They can go, at, at, uh, for example, at uh, Marion. Marion Technical College has um, college-level program uh, programs there. At ORW at Sinclair um, has a college program there. Um, beyond schooling, there's there's all kinds of pro- there's recreation programs. There's programs to prepare offenders for release. When I was mentioning. Um, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the the criminal thinking. There's a program called Thinking for a Change that the department does, and that is really um, helping look at criminal thinking. They um, there's programs to help them get job skills if they want. The, there's a vocational education programs at uh, every prison. There are recovery programs because if you look at kind of the profile of the people who uh, commit crimes most of them have either are either alcoholics or uh, have uh, addiction issues with drugs and so there's lots of drug there's um, counseling programs there's uh, support like AA and Narcotics Anonymous so there's a, a myriad of drug programs there are mental health programs there's I mean it's there there's Okay. I mean, and, and offenders have to decide what they want to do. They can lay in their bed and sign up for the easiest job and work 30 minutes a day, or they can have a real job, go to maintenance, learn a skill, go to school. I mean, so it's really up to them. And if, and one of the things when we select people, I think you asked about that, and I might have jumped over it, but when we're selecting people, we are looking for people who have made some investment in their own life. If they just come to the end of the sentence and say, okay, here I am, you know, I need help. It's like, well, that's nice, but what did you do with the last 10 years, 15 years, 30 years? But if they've done something, if they say, okay, this is what brought me to prison and I have been working on this. I've been, go- I've been going to uh, recovery service counseling, and I've been working on uh, my education, and I've been working on my thinking errors, and I've been, you know, so um, we're looking for people who have made some level of investment in their own lives, because and then we'll take a shot at it. They don't have to have been perfect. They don't have to have a perfect institution record, but they have to show that they did something. Are there incentives uh, for inmates to do those programs within the, the prison system? Do they get, uh, I don't know, um, extra time, you know, exercising or more time at the library if they no, sign they up? No, they have uh, access to all that. Um, they, they can earn uh, good time credits, and it just depends how they're sentenced. So uh, it, it's not enough to to make somebody decide they want to do the right thing. They have to, at some point, people come to, in, in, in addiction, they talk about hitting rock bottom. So it just depends if it's rock bottom. Sometimes rock bottom is the third incarceration. Sometimes rock bottom, is, it just depends what it is. So it's different for everybody. So when somebody is 
tired and and an addiction they say they're sick and tired of being sick and tired so they just decide that's it that's my defining moment i'm done i'm on a trajectory now to do something with my life and then they because you can't make people be motivated so they have to come to that conclusion i'm ready for a change and that's what we're listening for at the interviews are they ready for a change have they made a significant investment and are they ready to do the work how many um inmates i'm thinking like a percentage are showing that initiative versus ones that are just want to do their sentence and like you say take the easiest job stay in their cell in their bed well i think typically at an institution that houses the lower level the level ones and twos those folks are pretty generally pretty serious about trying to do something and you i i would have i would struggle giving you a percentage if i was living in the institution and i knew more but it's been 16 years since i've actually worked full-time in a prison so i would be guessing but there's a, a lot of people that want to do something but that's certainly not everybody there's mm-hmm. people doing the wrong thing trying to get drugs in trying to do all kinds of criminal behavior inside prison so those people clearly aren't ready for release i know they have a lot of time on their hands i know from my clients that can write me <laughs> missives uh, that go on and on and on and and, uh, and certainly some of the um, inmates are are very uh, well educated in the yes. area of law and research and you know I've I've learned over the years to take their suggestions or their uh, case comments very very seriously because they know what they're doing. Yes. Well, they've got time. You're yeah. right. Yes. Speaking of, I think we're we're about <laughs> out of time. So if people want to connect with you or with the organization, what's the easiest way to do that? Probably send us an email at info at kindway, K-I-N-D-W-A-Y dot org. And then that comes right to our office and we'll be happy to respond. Chris, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Um, It's a very, very interesting uh, area that you're in, Uh, obviously uh, very helpful. And um, i would like to have you back and talk more about some of these issues if we can. Sure. Yeah, wonderful having you with us. Thank you. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Our next interview, our next guest will be Denzel Porteous of Stonewall Columbus. We'll be talking about issues related to LGBTQ challenges. Uh, You can find us at our website and you can download us on your favorite phone app. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.